The book Screw Tape Letters is actually probably my favorite C.S. Lewis book. And you've probably heard me say that about other books. But in this moment, that's the way I feel about Screw Tape Letters. Uh, it's one of his greatest works. It is satire, and it is written from the perspective of a devil, a demon maybe, named Screwtape, who is training his nephew, demon, named Wormwood. And he's training him, and he's writing to him in how to distract and ensnare the patient, which is a religious man, how to ensnare him and lead him to hell. And one of the sections of the book that has always fascinated me, actually the, the whole book comes across in talking about spiritual warfare in ways that we probably don't think about. It's actually way more obvious and yet way more subtle. And it's very helpful in that way. But one of the sections of the book, Screwtape is schooling his protege on the effectiveness of distraction. He says, you're going to get to a point when you have tempted the patient, the Christian, enough. And you're going to have to move into some other things, not just sinful temptation, but just distraction. And not distraction with temptation or sinful things, just distraction. Just distract him from the things that are good and the things that, are ma that matter. And one of the sentences in that section, he says this, you will find that anything, anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wondering attention. So what will distract us? Anything or nothing. We are distracted beings. And I want you to hear the rest of uh, this section in light of our current context. As, he, as, as the book continues here, think about the way we are distracted, specifically with technology. Screwtape writes to Wormwood and he says this, you will no longer need a good book, which he really likes, to keep him from his prayer or his work or his sleep. A column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. You can make him waste his time not only in conversation he enjoys with people whom he likes, but in conversation with those he cares nothing about on subjects that actually bore him. Now think about our behavior on social media, advertisements that track you down and distract you, and then comments and likes about things that you really don't care that much about, conversations that in real life would actually bore you. He continues, you can make him do nothing at all for long periods of time. You can keep him up late at night, not roistering, but staring at a dead fire in a cold room. What do you spend late nights doing staring at? Maybe it's not a cold fire, the light of your phone or device in front of you. All the healthy and outgoing activities, which we want him to avoid, can be inhibited and nothing given in return. Again, distract him from good things, and there's really nothing in return that you have to give him. He's just a distracted person and so easily distracted. 
So that at last he may say, as one of my own patients, which is another religious person or Christian that is led away, he said on his arrival down here in hell, I see now that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. I just spent my life distracted, doing nothing. Now, how does that speak to so much of our lives here? Just distract it, doing nothing. I read this week that the average person spends two and a half hours a day on social media. Two and a half hours a day on social media. Now, this isn't just to blast our phones, devices, and social media. But it is to teach us that spiritual warfare, at the heart of spiritual warfare, is the battle of distraction. How many moments in your day are spent being distracted? You go to check your email and you end up watching WWE highlights from the 1980s. You go to respond to an important phone call or an email and you end up checking the, the, the stats and, and who's going to win on Saturday or what player for UK is hurt and the latest guy who spied on practice, what sort of uh, information does he have about that? And you spend not just minutes, but even hours of day in this distraction We are distracted, and we are distracted from our distractions. Even as I wrote that sentence right there, typed that word and put an exclamation point in my notes, I was typing it on a computer with a phone and an iPad beside me and two TVs going with college football on the other side of me. This is the world we live in, all of us. We are easily distracted. And we got to begin to see that this is spiritual warfare. This area of distraction in our life, it's not neutral. And it's what Satan and the forces of darkness use for great benefit in their warfare against us and the gospel. And we see that in chapter 6 of Nehemiah. And here's the point of the chapter. Focus on a greater work protects us from the enemy's traps of distraction. Focus on a greater work protects us from the enemy's traps of distraction. Notice verse 1. Now when Sambalot and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab. Now remember throughout the book, the enemies of God hate the idea that the wall's going up and they are surrounding Judah. They're surrounding even Jerusalem to distract Nehemiah from his work. And here, they hear that the, the wall is almost finished. Notice, and the rest of the enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it. And so they watch the wall go up and it gets to a point where it's almost complete and the enemies of God realize there's no way for us to get in now. There's no way for, for us to get around the wall. Even though Nehemiah says, although up to that time, I had not set the doors in the gates. And one of the things that is amazing to me about Nehemiah is kind of his OCD to detail. He, he wants to make sure we get all the details. He, wanna, he wants to make sure that we know what the work is and, and when it's going on and when this happened. 
And he says, we haven't even hung the gates yet, but the enemies, they are in fear. And then verse 2, Sembalat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together in Hakfarim, in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And so Nehemiah says, we had gotten to a point where the enemies of God realized it's over. We'll never get in Jerusalem again. All we had to do was hang the gates. And they begin to send letters to me. And they say, Nehemiah, come out and meet with us. Let's have a summit of all the enemies of God. And let's celebrate your accomplishments. Let's get together and let's talk about peace. And let's talk about alliances out here in the middle of nowhere. And Nehemiah says, I realize that their intent was to do me harm, to, to kidnap him, to kill him, and nobody really would even know what had happened. But notice Nehemiah's response. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down, and why should the work stop while I leave it and come to you? You of all people, who have tried to stop the work, you who have sent in threats, you who have threatened to come and attack and destroy this place and destroy the work. Why would I stop, first of all, this great work, this amazing work for God and come out to the enemies of God? You guys have lost your mind. Nehemiah is laser focused. I am doing a great work. I will not be distracted. And he says they sent to him four times, and in the same manner, he responded. He continued to send messengers back. He would not be deceived, and he would not be distracted. Now, remember how Nehemiah thinks about his work, his mission. God's glory is wrapped up in his faithfulness to his people. God says, I am who I am, meaning I do what I say I will do. And I have set my promises on a specific people and my name is at stake in doing everything for them that I promised to do for them. When they disobey, I'm going to send them away. But if they repent, I will bring them back. And now the people of God are back in Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is dilapidated. The enemies of God are surrounding and they're even attacking And so Nehemiah hears about that, and he says the glory of God and the name of God is at stake in the wall, this wall. Has God really been faithful to his people? Do the enemies who are surrounding know that God is a faithful God to us? The way the wall looks, no one could tell. So Nehemiah in Persia says, I'm going to go rebuild that wall. And he begins to pray, and he begins to risk But he sees God's glory tied up in this wall, and he latches himself to the promise that God will be faithful to his people at all costs. This is his mission. This is the greater work, he says, that he is committed to here. I am doing a great work that reflects God's glory and faithfulness to his people. And we have seen so far, Nehemiah is a relentless plotter. He will not be stopped. When there is an obstacle, he plods right through it. He prays, he risks, 
He stands against the enemies of God. He squelches complaints from the people of God. He confronts oppression and injustice. And we ask, why? Why would he be so relentless and gritty and faithful? Because it's a greater work. It transcends everything in his life, God's glory and God's faithfulness. And here, it saves his life. His commitment to this great work saves his life. And that's the point. Faithfulness to the greater work will save your life. Now, you may be thinking, well, physically, harm at times, maybe. But I know this. Committed to the greater mission of God in the world will save your life from life-sucking distractions that cause you to waste your time. And you get to the end and say, I spent most of my time on basically nothing. Things I liked, things I didn't like. It'll save you from that. You see, God's faithfulness now is wrapped up in the promise of Jesus Christ who says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. From Genesis to Revelation, even Nehemiah fits in this story where God says, I'm going to be faithful to a people and he has been faithful to a people in Jesus Christ and he is building up, gathering this people to himself from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. This is the greater work that Jesus is doing. And you want to save your life from meaningless and purposelessness. Say today, I'm committed to a greater work. Save your life from yourself, wasting your life. Ask, where in this great story of faithfulness does my life fit? You see, some of us hear what I just said and you think, I got to be a missionary. That's not what I'm saying. You are a witness in Richmond, Kentucky. Tomorrow, when you go to your job and you balance spreadsheets, when you greet people coming into the store, when you deal with conflict in the office, you are a witness and a missionary there that is supposed to figure out, if you're a Christian, how my life fits into that story of faithfulness, into that greater work. And all of us, hundreds of people here today, you've got to go home and you've got to strategize and you've got to think and you've got to pray. How do I fit my life into that story? How do I keep from wasting my life? How, how can I be a part of this greater work of Jesus in the world? The reality is that there are people all around you on a daily basis, if we believe what the Bible says, who are headed to hell. What's distracting you from them? What is distracting you from looking into their eyes and knowing they will consciously endure the fire of God's judgment forever? What is it? That's the greater work for you. Tomorrow, that's your greater work. The focus that saves you from being distracted and wasting your life. There are literally millions who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. They don't know the gospel. They're not gathering in places like this and singing things that are just normal and natural. And, and this makes perfect sense to you that you would be here today. They don't know. And they'll spend eternity separated from God under his judgment. The greater work is right in front of you. What is distracting you? Why don't you be like Nehemiah and say, I am doing a great work. Notice verse 5. 
In the same way, Sambalat, for the fifth time, sent his servant with me with an open letter in his hand. This dude won't give up. We've seen it throughout the whole book. He just keeps coming after Nehemiah. And this time he sends, sends a letter and it's an open letter. What does that mean? It's the equivalent of posting it on Facebook, Twitter, where everybody can see and it's public. I want everybody to know this personal letter to Nehemiah. And so as the letter tra- uh, travels to him, everyone can see it and everyone knows what he's saying. But what is in the letter? It is reported among the nations and Geshem. This is like, everybody knows this, even Geshem and the people in Geshem know this, Nehemiah, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. Remember, this is an open letter going to Nehemiah. Everyone can read it. The reason you're building the wall is that you will rebel. That's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. Notice how it just mounts in the personal attack. The Jews are going to rebel. And by the way, Nehemiah, we hear you want to be king. This is the rumor about. Verse 7. And you have also set up the prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. And this is the way that it works throughout the Old Testament. Anytime there's a new king on the scene, the prophets rise up and they say the king is at hand. The king is here. The king is here. And Nehemiah, we hear that you have a press conference scheduled for sometime next week, maybe, where you're going to announce that your king and the prophets will be there to confirm it. Notice there is a king in Judah. (laughs) Nehemiah, you just want to be king. And now the king, he refers to Artaxerxes, We'll hear these reports, and so now come and let us take counsel together. Nehemiah, we're going to tell Artaxerxes that you're just there to be king. And you know he's going to be infuriated. Ezra 4 stops the building of the city because he sees the people, uh, what they're doing as rebellion against him. Nehemiah's going to happen again, and the Persians are going to come in, and they're going to invade Because we're going to tell them that you want to be king. We are starting this rumor throughout the land. And by the way, when that happens, you're going to need our help. So let's get together and talk about it. Notice Nehemiah. Then I sent to him saying, no such thing as you say have been done. For you are inventing them out of your own mind. Y'all are a bunch of idiots. Now, idiot... If you haven't been around here in a while or for a while, is a biblical word. It is biblical. It means one's own. And that's exactly what he says here. You're inventing this out of your own mind. You are an idiot. This isn't happening. And notice how Nehemiah is living according to truth and with integrity. He knows that's not the case. And so he continues to plot forward. Notice verse 9. For they all wanted to frighten us thinking... Their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah tells us they did this to scare us. You know, every day going to work wondering, does Artaxerxes think that we're rebelling against him? Are the Persians going to show up tomorrow and, and take this place back over? Is Nehemiah going to be arrested? Let's just stop altogether. That's too much of a risk. And the people begin to live in anxiety and fear. That's what the enemies of God want. But what does Nehemiah do here? He prays. 
And, and we know in his own heart, Nehemiah was a man who at times was scared. Remember, he's scared to go to, before Artaxerxes. And you can imagine as he opens up that letter, his heart begins to race. I can't believe this is out there. Who's hearing about these things? And he stops and he backs away and he says, it's the greater work that matters the most. God, strengthen my hand. Strengthen my hand so that I would not be paralyzed by worry and doubt and I would keep plodding forward. And we see this with Nehemiah throughout. Nehemiah attacks every obstacle with prayer, with prayer and work. He prays and then he gets back to work. And instead of being worried about the rumors, he prays and he just gets back to work. And today you've got to see prayer as an act of trust. That's not a stretch for many of us, right? Prayer isn't to get what you want. It is an act that says, I'm not God. God, you are God and you're a good father and you will do what's right. Help me to trust you. Here are my desires, but I'm going to trust you. Prayer is an act of trust, but so is work. Work is an act of trust. Here for Nehemiah, he believes and trusts God to be faithful to his people. And so what does he do? He gets to work. We believe that God is going to build his church from among the nations, every tribe, every people, every tongue. They're going to be gathered together. We know that God has promised to do that. And so what do we do? We get to work. It's an act of trusting God to do what he has promised to do. And faithful prayer and kingdom work so often will guard your heart from anxiety and worry. I talk to men a lot these days who are full of anxiety and fear. And one of the things I notice with them is they don't work very hard. They're not engaged in things that demand, even they may have a high paying job, but their job doesn't demand much from them. And they're full of anxiety and worry. Why is that? God designed us to work, to keep the the, the garden and to work and, and to give ourselves over to things that require sacrifice and grit from us. And when we're not doing that, We're anxious. We're worried that there's energy within us that's not being spent in the way that it should. Well, it's the same thing for the Christian. God has given you his spirit to witness Jesus is Lord. That's what you're designed to do. Male and female, children here today who believe the gospel, students who believe the gospel. If you have the spirit of God within you, he has made you a witness. That's who you are. That's who you're designed to be. And here's the reality. A lot of the worry and anxiety in your life is wrapped up in the reality you're not doing that work. And you've anchored your heart to things that have no eternal weight. And those are the things that that are pulling you down. And those are the things that have got you worried. Things that don't last. Things that don't amount to a hill of beans. And you're all tore up about it. And one of the things that would guard your heart from that worry is if you backed up like Nehemiah and says, I am, I'm created to, I'm, I am created to do a greater work. And you really got after it for Jesus. And you wouldn't have time to be so tore up in yourself because you would be doing the greater work. And that energy and that creativity 
And those skills that God has equipped you with, if they were being put to use for the kingdom, you would guard your heart from fear and worry. What are you worried about today that has nothing to do with the gospel or the mission of the church? If you said right now, I'm going to tell you my greatest worry, and then you were going to draw a line to the mission of Christ, would it even connect? Think about that. What what value does it have? Nehemiah says, I'm not going to be distracted by useless fear. And you need to be like Nehemiah today and pray and get back to work. You need to pray and say, God has given me this family. God has given me this job. God has given me these resources. I trust you, God, with the life you've given me. You haven't given me someone else's life. You've given me this life, and I trust you with this life. And so, God, use me to be a witness for your glory, to declare Jesus is Lord. Pray to him. Trust him with what he has given you and who he's created you to be. And then guess what? Get back to work. Pray. Pray in light of the promise God has said he will be faithful to his people. How can I work for his people? Who needs my prayer? Who needs my encouragement? I have resources. Who needs my resources? Does someone need a meal? Does does someone need money? And don't just send a gift card. Go to their house. Maybe you can't cook. Stop by Old Charlie's. Everybody likes the chicken strips. No, if you're going to do chicken strips, you got to go to Chick-fil-A. It's church rule. But get... Just go. I'm going to show up on someone's steps who need to be encouraged, and they are doubting the faithfulness of God, and I'm going to show up as a tangible act of God's faithfulness in their life. Think about, strategize, how can I get to work in doing that? And I'll tell you what, a lot of your worry and anxiety won't be there because you will be working for the kingdom, and you won't be thinking about yourself. You'll be thinking about others. Pray and get back to work. Notice the text continues. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delaha, the son of Mahatabal. Now, I practiced that. I don't think it came across as good as I practiced. <laughs> Who was confined to his home. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Now, a point here is the enemy doesn't stop. He doesn't sleep. He just keeps coming and coming and coming. And now they've hired a prophet to distract Nehemiah to, to his house. But then the prophet says, I got a word for you. The enemies of God, they're all around. Now, remember, these enemies are scared of Artaxerxes. They're really not there. But he's trying to convince them they're going to attack you. And the best place for you to hide, Nehemiah, is in God's holy temple. Let's run into the temple from the enemies. And Nehemiah, verse 11, said, such a man as I run away. I love that. Do you know who I am? I'm Nehemiah. I ain't scared. I'm not scared. I've dealt with these enemies the whole time I've been here. I'm not running away. And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go. Now, God's temple was for his holy presence, and sinful man could not just rush in. And many leaders and heroes and priests were killed by God for running into the temple. That's what he's trying to do. And Nehemiah says, I ain't scared, but I also ain't stupid. 
I'm not running from men, and I'm too sinful to run into the house of God. Verse 12, and I understood and saw that God had not sent him and that he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. He was a hired agent, a hired prophet. He'd been paid off to scare me and to kill me, or at the very least, mar my reputation as a coward and a sinful fraud who really didn't care about the glory of God. Verse 13, for this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in, a, in this way and sin, and so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. You see, Nehemiah, he's a coward. And by the way, he doesn't care about this holy God. He just ran right into the temple. And now he's got leprosy, or now he's dead. That's what they wanted to do. And so what does Nehemiah do? Here's another one of his imprecatory prayers. Remember Tobiah and Sambalot. He mentions their name. Oh my God, and according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, this is just some other prophet that they've hired, and the rest of the prophets who want to make me afraid. And it seems as though they have a network of prophets, and they're just going around speaking things to scare Nehemiah, to ruin his reputation. And Nehemiah says, God, you take care of my enemies. You remember what they are doing. And notice again the way he responds to obstacle. He stops and he prays. God, you handle the lies of our enemies. I'm going to keep working. I'm going to get back to work. And again, we see here the greater work protects us from distraction. It protects Nehemiah here from foolishness. We see in the Bible, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There is a holy creator, and what he has said matters more than anything. That is wisdom. And foolishness is to not fear God. And here they're trying to trap him with foolishness. To not fear God and to fear man more than God. And Nehemiah teaches us here that would be moronic. God has called me to a greater work. I fear him first and foremost. It would be stupid for me to see little petty, pathetic men yammering about and to be scared of them instead of to fear the holy creator God of the universe. That doesn't make any sense. And we see here faithfulness is wrapped up in wisdom. We don't abandon the work for fear of men. The dumbest thing you can do is to act like the threats and opinions of men matter more than God's. That's the dumbest thing you do on a daily basis. Me too. It doesn't make any sense. It's stupid. That what men think of me matters more than what God thinks of me. God is a holy, righteous God. And a father who set his love upon me in Christ, why would I be wrapped up and paralyzed in what others think of me? Why would we be paralyzed in silence? Why would we play the game to be accepted and cool and to compromise the gospel, to be quiet about the gospel? The wisest thing you can do tomorrow is to say God's holy name matters more than anything else. And I fear him most and I'm going to speak his name out of reverence. Embrace the greater work tomorrow. Shake up the status quo in your office, school, those relationships that you're in. Here, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you how to do it. 
People are talking about politics, talking about college football, they're talking about inflation, they're talking about taxes, talking about all these things, things going on at work. At some point tomorrow, look at someone and say, do you have any spiritual beliefs? Just say it. Prove that you fear God more. And then ask, to you, who is Jesus? What do you know about Jesus? And just let them respond. And then ask them, if you were wrong, would you want to know? That's that easy. Why don't we do that? It's because we fear men and we fear the awkwardness and we fear the cringiness and we fear, we fear maybe they won't think I'm as cool as, as I think I am. Maybe, maybe they won't talk to me again. And that, most of those things never happen. People sort of yawn and move on. And then some people say, say what? Okay, could you tell me more? But tomorrow, just speak. I, I don't fear men. I fear God most and speak. Notice the text continues. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elam in 52 days. Now, this is record time. And Nehemiah puts this in here like earlier, the enemies of God are attacking. And he says, we just went back to work. We kept building the wall. Here, the wall is finished. And he puts it here. Despite the enemy's work, the wall is finished in 52 days. Verse 16. And when all the enemies heard it, all the nations around us, they were afraid and they fell greatly in their own esteem. Notice this. They pride in themselves. They they love themselves. But when they fear this, when they know this happened, they fell. They lost their esteem. They lost their confidence. Why? For they perceived that the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. They understand This is about God and his glory. And God, Yahweh, could be the only one who would do that for his people. And they're scared. Notice throughout the book, as Nehemiah works, the more Nehemiah works, the more is accomplished, the more the enemies squirm. Why? They know God is a warrior for his people and it scares them to death. And the same thing goes on in your life on a daily basis. As you just plod and you are faithful to the gospel and the things of God, it is a declaration of defeat to the enemies of God. See, we think about spiritual warfare so often, and we think exorcism, you know, praying, throwing some water in this room, in this room. The the, the essentials of spiritual warfare are just to get up and read your Bible and pray Tell your kids or someone else about Jesus and serve, serve your church. That, that, when you do that, it scares Satan to death. Why? Because it's proof you are living like a citizen of another kingdom. You are living like a citizen of a kingdom that's already won. And when you just do the simple, obedient things every day and you just plod along, Satan understands, the forces of darkness understand, as the hymn says, their doom is sure. Jesus has won and he has purchased this one and he is living as if Jesus is Lord. That's the heart of your spiritual warfare. It's a declaration of defeat to the enemies as we see here. Verse 17. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechanai and the son of Ariah. And his son Jehohanan, there we go, I tried, 
had taken the daughter of Meshelah, the son of Barakai, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. And so we get to the end, and Nehemiah says, the, the wall is finished, and the enemies of God are scared to death. Happily ever after, no. The enemy kept coming. Even behind the wall, the enemy didn't sleep. This guy, Tobiah, he has all kinds of alliances in Judah. He has all kinds of alliances in Jerusalem. He, he has, he, he's married into the high priestly family. And so he's got word on the street, and he's constantly spreading rumors, and he's constantly trying to make Nehemiah afraid. And that's the point. The, the, the enemy doesn't sleep. You see, we live our life and we think, this thing in front of me, this problem, this obstacle, this thing I just got to solve, if I can just get past this thing, then I can really begin to live life. And a lot of us are shocked and frustrated that when you get by that thing, there's another thing, and there's another thing, and there's another thing. You live in a world cursed by sin and death. You live in a world where Satan is real, and he prowls about as a roaring lion seeking to destroy you. And this side of heaven, you will not be free of difficulty. You will not be free of hardship. And the enemy will keep coming and coming and coming and coming. And there will be a new thing set to destroy you tomorrow. Right now, the forces of darkness oppose God's kingdom in millions and millions and millions of ways all across the world. And your life as a Christian is being opposed in this moment in thousands and thousands of ways that if God just opened up the door and showed it to you, you would fall out dead. You're opposed, and you will be opposed until you breathe your last breath. And if you can get that, then you can be faithful because you understand the essence of faithfulness is difficulty. At the heart of it is difficulty. If there's no difficulty, faithfulness doesn't exist. And so I'm faithful in the face of opposition. Our work, we also see here, will never silence the enemy. You'll never shut Satan up yourself. You won't. You can't. I don't care what kind of magical incantation potions you spray at him. You can't shut Satan up. Nehemiah couldn't shut the enemies of God up. What's my point in saying that? You don't have to. There's another one who shut Satan's mouth. And there's another one who shuts his mouth today because the enemy keeps coming after you. And today he's saying, look at all the things you've done. Look how sinful you are. And yet there is one who on the cross said, no, the work is finished. They are forgiven by my blood. The, the, the enemy is speaking to you today and they're saying, yeah, you're doing this Christian thing, but guess what? You're going to die one day. All your friends from high school are dying Every day it just ticks off and you get closer to death. Do you really believe these things? Then why in your heart are you scared? And you begin to tremble and what do you do? You pray to God and you say, it's not about my work. It's about the one who is a former corpse back from the dead who's ruling and reigning at the right hand of God and he shuts the enemy's mouth. It is Jesus who shuts the enemy's mouth. 
And that's why we trust in his work. The one who in the garden full of anxiety and terror prayed to God and said, not my will, your will be done. And what did he do? He prayed and then he got to work. And the work is finished on the cross. You see, the enemy today is trying to convince you that the greater work of Christ is but a distraction in your life. That's what you convince yourself of. When you're called to serve Christ and obey Christ, what comes into your mind so often is that's just a distraction. That's irrelevant to my life. I got real problems. And what Satan is trying to convince you is that the gospel is a distraction. And the work in your life is to focus on the gospel. Remember these words. You will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wondering attention. Anything or nothing when everything is found in the finished work of Christ, will we certainly not be distracted from the cross?